Uh, would you join me? Acts chapter number 10. Acts chapter number 10. We're going through the book of Acts. Uh, this is our second week in this particular chapter. And last week, um, the introduction of the chapter was very long and very teachy and full of lots of information. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I say this every week, guys. Uh, but if you're going to be with us uh, and you happen to miss last week, uh, you really need to go back and pull it up online and watch that. Everybody with me? If you missed last week because there's far too much background material to really set the stage and I can't do it all again each week. So the reason that chapter 10 and 11 are grouped together and the reason these two chapters are so important is because it's really our birthday, and I'm assuming most of us are, are Gentiles. Uh, this is our birth certificate here. This is when we came into Christianity. Uh, and again, without reteaching everything, at this point in the development of the church, there were already Gentiles, us, who were born as Gentiles and had become Jews through various processes. Ultimately, if you were male, they would be circumcised. This already existed. Gentiles who had become Jews heard the gospel and became Christian. That was already there. So what is unique here is what we're going to find is a Gentile and his family not taking the step of becoming Jewish and going straight to becoming a Christian, which is what we have done. That is never a requirement here. Hey, you need to become a Jew first, and then we'll tell you how to become a Christian. Why do we do that? In the Old Testament, you would become part of the Jewish faith, and you would enter those rites and rituals and the ceremonial law. Why don't we do that anymore? So I want to invite you. In fact, there's something that most all of us have done this week that is actually in the text. And I dare say, I'll guarantee you in the room, there are people that have been doing things that go against what the Old Testament says. And you've just been doing it and you're like, don't even know why you've been allowed to be doing this thing. It's okay that you have been doing it, by the way. You'll see that. But there's some like been doing it. And the only reason you've been doing this thing is because everybody around you does this. Never even stopping to think, why is this okay when the Bible says this is not okay? Why can we do this now? And hopefully that will become a little more clear in a moment. So our test case about Gentiles, his name is Cornelius, verses 1 through 8. We looked at last week. He's a centurion. He's a Roman military man. He's over 100 men. But he's a very devout man. He's, this, I like this guy. I really love this guy. In fact, I said last week, he's the guy you would want to be your neighbor. The only problem with him is that he's lost. He's on his way to hell. Other than that, man, this guy, he's a great guy, right? So he's learning about Judaism, He's not only one who fears God internally and has this respect for the God of the Jews and the God of the Bible, but he's learning about Judaism. The term here really means he's a God-fearer. And we proposed to you last week that God-fearers would be ones that would be allowed because they're taking these steps and they're aligning with dietary laws and the Sabbaths and all of these things. They are taking, they're allowed to come into the Jewish synagogues, but you've got to sit at the back because you're not fully Jewish yet. And usually that was a step where ultimately they would get baptized. And again, the males would become circumcised and become Jewish in the full sense. The problem is with this man, he has not done the latter thing. But he's doing two things. He's very generous. He's a giver. He gives to God's people there. He gives alms generously and he prays like all the time. The Jews had set times of prayer. Apparently this man, in fact, when he sees his vision, he's actually praying at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he's praying. He's giving. He's searching. He wants to know what he has to do in life. 
And then the Lord sends an angel, verse number four, to him in this prayer time at three o'clock one afternoon. Don't know what day of the week it is. We're just going to call it day one. On day one, three o'clock, an angel appears to him. It startles him. He asks, what is it? And the angel says that your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And if you were here last week, I really struggled with that. And the reason I struggled, and by the way, do you remember the answer to these questions? Now, wait a minute. If God does not just accept and acknowledge as legitimate a lost person's attempts to do good things, then why is this man's good works coming up and ascending as a memorial offering before God? And if only saved people, as the Bible teaches, if only saved people can really pray and really have an effective prayer life because they're the only ones who are the children of God, they're the only ones who can come to God by the name of Jesus Christ, and this man is not saved, then how come his prayers... His prayer is ascending to God. How come this is being said by this angel? This was a paradox. And we ended up answering it in two phases. And after I mention this, then we'll get into our text today. So here's our transition. The reason the Lord accepted his attempt at good works is because it was in keeping with the promise he had made to Abraham. God had told Abraham, people who bless your descendants... The Jews, my chosen people, anyone who blesses them, I will bless them. Not going to give them eternal life just because they're good to the Jewish people. But by being good to the Jewish people, God will take note. And in this life, they will be blessed. Second thing we noted, how is he able to pray if he's a lost person? Well, it's not just that he's praying any old prayer and God's receiving all of his vast prayers. It's this one particular. And we bore it out in various verses. This is why you need to go back and listen to that. He knows he's lost, and his primary prayer, this is the one that's ascended to God, is he knows he's lost, and he's not right with God, and he wants to know, God, would you give me more spiritual light? I want to know how to have a relationship with you. And the angel says that, in essence, that prayer has ascended to God. So because of that, here's what you need to do. You need to send men 30, 33 miles down the the coast. He's in Caesarea down the coast of the Mediterranean, down to Joppa. There's a man named Peter. His name is Simon Peter. He's staying in the house of a man named Simon who's a tanner, and they're over by the seaside. You need to send men down there, bring him back up here. He'll tell you what you need to do. And so that's kind of where we left off. Now, the last thing that is in context that will help us understand what's going on in chapter 10, starting in verse 9, this is important. Jews had no dealings with Gentiles. You remember the, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? She was surprised. Jesus says, hey, would you give me a drink? She's shocked. And remember, she's half Jewish. She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jews don't even have dealings with half Jews. I'm not quoting, but William Barclay in multiple places has alluded to how much. Now, listen, I'm talking about strict Jews at this time. I'm, I'm not talking about Peter. I am not saying this is Peter's mindset. But strict Jews in this time period had like no use whatsoever for Gentiles. Strict Jews even went so far as to say, you do not help a Gentile woman who's giving birth. You don't help her because that's doing nothing but bringing another Gentile into the world. If I saw a poison, if I saw any snake popping out eggs, I'm not helping it. I ain't helping that. I want to kill. You're bringing a bunch more snakes. I want to kill. That's their attitude. The strict Jews. They're like... Wait, what? Some, I mean the strictness of the strict, even went so far as to say Gentiles were actually created to fuel the flames of hell. 
I am not saying that's where Peter... Peter has the Holy Ghost in him. So he has love for people. But this was the culture. And now it's time for walls to be coming down within the church. Would you look at verse number 9? So Cornelius has sent three of his men 30 miles down the coast following the instructions of the angel. And we're going to read verses 9 down to verse 23a. We're only going to 23a this morning. Look at verse 9. So that was day one. That was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They actually get a head start and they move out immediately. So verse 9, the next day, as they, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so you kind of, would you picture a map up here, Caesarea, 30-some miles away, okay, you got it in your map. Picture a dot and we've got a light and that little light is these three guys and they're just kind of making their way down and they're almost down to Joppa. Follow these little lights. We're going to attach a light to each one. Verse 9. So the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so they're just outside, coming up to it. Meanwhile, can I add that word, over by the seacoast, Peter put a light on him. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So the sixth hour in this time period is noon. So it's noon. So we got their little lights coming down. We're picturing a map in our mind. And then there's this house over by the sea. It's Simon the Tanner's house. Simon Peter's in there. But Simon's going to go out. He's going to go up the outside staircase up to the flat top roof. Don't picture Peter hanging on like a, a pitched roof. Like he's got some knee boards and toe boards. And he's going up there. Hanging. That's not it. They had a flat roof. And this was kind of an escape at times. It's the way they built their houses. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. It's lunch. Wanted something to eat. But while they, can we put a light inside the house? Whoever they are, I don't know how many they are, two, three, four, who knows. He's hungry, wants something to eat. While they were preparing it, he, upstairs on the, on the roof, fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending and I mean a great sheet I mean we're not talking about like a hot air balloon size sheet we're probably talking about something way bigger than that and not shaped like a hot air balloon you're going to see it's kind of hot air balloon turned upside down verse 11 he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth so it lands and the sheet falls open. In it were all kinds of animals. I mean, all kinds of animals. And reptiles and birds of the air. Like the idea of this, all kind of, picture it. All kind of animals. All kind of reptiles. What, are, what kind of reptiles are we talking about? Alligators, crocodiles, snakes, lizards. I mean, all kind. All kind of animals. All kind of reptiles. All kind of birds. I mean, all kind of birds. What in the world is going on? And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Rise, Peter, kill. Here's all these animals. Go. Hey, no offense. If you're a vegetarian, not, more power to you. More power to you. God is not a vegetarian. I'm just saying. It, you can do that for health reasons. Seriously, seriously. There's no judgment. Just make sure there's no judgment the other way because that would be a wrong position. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. There's all these animals. But Peter, having heard that, says, By no means, Lord. Why would he say that? For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Here's the idea. I have never eaten anything common or unclean, and I'm not starting now. 
like, rise, Peter. What are all these? Rise, Peter. Look, birds, reptiles, animals. Go get you something. Kill it. Eat it. No, Lord. I'm not, and notice even the word common, what it means is unholy. Follow this. Unholy means it's not been set apart. Catch that. It's not been set apart as holy. It's unholy. Don't think like just ungodly, filthy, awful. It's just not set apart. What? This is subtle. It's a subtle little thing. It's their mindset. Jews of that day and Peter, their mindset is not so much what are we not allowed to eat? Let's go out and figure out what, what can't we eat. That's not how they thought. The way they thought is what can we eat? What has been set apart for us that is clean and holy? The implication is most things are not clean and holy. He's like, I've never eaten anything that's not designated. And I've surely never eaten anything that's directly been said is unclean. We'll see that in a moment. So verse 15 is a key verse. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once. It's taken up into heaven. Everybody catch it? Sheet comes down. What in the world? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Don't call common what has been made clean. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. No, Lord. No. Peter, don't call common what has been made clean. Rise and eat. No, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Don't call common and unholy and unclean what has been cleansed. Verse 17, he's still on the roof. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, I mean, like, what in the world? Was this me? While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, okay, back on the other side, remember, the men who were sent by Cornelius, there's three of them, having made inquiry for Simon's house. Hey, guys, I'm going over here. I'm getting a quick bite to eat over here. Yeah, all right, you go ahead. Hey, I'm getting something right over here. Hey, I need to hit the restroom. Hey, let's meet back here. Meanwhile, hey, anybody here know where the tanner is at? Looking for a guy named Simon. Maybe he has some kind of hotel to him. Maybe doing two things out of the house. He's a tanner. No, I don't know. Who's that you're looking for? A guy named Simon. He's a tanner. The tanner, yeah, actually, he's one of my supply guys. He's a good fella. I'll tell you what you need to do. Verse 16, verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So at the gate of the house. And called out. By the way, listen, they know not to go past the gate. They know the deal. They're Gentiles. They called out to whether Simon, uh, is this Simon the Tanner's house? It is? What can we do for you? You don't happen to have like a, another Simon. You're, you're, do you have like another Simon, a Simon Peter that's supposed to? And so they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering, he's still on the roof. 
He's not hearing all this. He's in the zone. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Did everybody catch that? Hey, Peter, there's three men. They're looking for you. I want you to know something. I've sent them. I'm doing this. I want you to get up and go down there, and you're going to accompany them. You're going to go with them. Are we clear? Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Listen, I, yeah, there is a Simon Peter that's here, but right now he said, I'm, it's me. You're looking for me. I'm the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, here we go. Cornelius, I know you don't know him, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a, a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. All right, come on in. Come on in. Would you notice three things with me, Lord willing, this morning? Number one, Peter's perplexing vision. Peter's perplexing vision. Would you look at verse 9? The next day as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So guys, I can't, I, I, you know I've got to go where the text goes, and so I'm going to take a moment, and I'm going to talk about prayer. So we know that they had flat top roofs. I mentioned that already. So things are going on in the house. We know that he's hungry and he's asked for some food. And so people are, we don't know how big the house is. We don't know the, 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 the layout and how many doors and all, but it's a noisy place. And so what does he do? He's making his way up while the food is being prepared and he's going up on the housetop to pray. It's about noon. So remember what we learned last week is Jews would pray at 9 a.m. and at noon and again at 3 p.m. Cornelius was praying 21 hours earlier than this. Now Peter here is praying, again, not legalistically, but like a good Jew, it seems like he is praying, and he goes up on the housetop. So here's what we know. This man, Peter, is a great man of God, but note it in your mind. I'm going to kind of sound a little bit like we sounded two weeks ago when we saw Peter being used of God to raise a dead woman named Tabitha back to life in an upper room, and we're kind of revisiting two things that he did there. So what we're finding is that Peter's greatness is connected to his prayer life. And so I want to challenge you on that. You say, Jeff, you talk about this all the time. I'm only going to do it when it comes up in the text. And so here it is again. It was there last week. Here it is again. What, so hang with me. Peter's greatness is attached to his prayer life. But like two weeks ago, we see two things that are, that are happening. Did you catch the clues? Here's, here's, here's a clue. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Well, he doesn't. And I'm not doing that, Lord. Later on, Peter, I've sent three men. There are three men. They're looking for you. Rise up. Go down. What does that imply to you? Hey, rise, kill, and eat. Rise, go down, and accompany those. What does that, what does that tell you Peter's doing? What is he doing? He is. I'm looking for another. What, he's what? Physically? He is kneeling. So he's up. Picture this great man of God up on the roof, 
And he's kneeling down and he's being told, rise up, go kill and eat. Nope, not doing that. Well, then rise up, go downstairs. This man is making himself, himself small before God. He's humbling himself. He's lifting God up. And just like two weeks ago, we see another factor and another clue. What is he doing? Before just attempting to pray, he is doing the absolute best he can, hang with me, to rid his area of distractions. The house is full of distraction. He can try to go over in the corner. Hey, I'm just going to slip over here and just try to pray right over here. Clang, clang, bang, bang, chatter, chatter. Like, oop, drop the eggs. Oop, dropped another egg. People bumping in. Excuse me, pardon me. You can't pray in that situation. Not really most effectively. So what does he do? He's going to the one place that's an escape. He's heading up on the housetop. Now, guys, I want you to, everybody hang with If you've been here a long time, you've heard me talk about three kind of prayers. Corporate prayer where we pray together. And you've heard me talk about what I call, this is my word, daily fellowship prayer. What does that even mean? I'm going to share something not to make me look good, just to kind of give an example. Typically, by the time I preach on a passage, I have read it 30 times at least. Lord willing, I don't know, I'm probably a little legalistic with myself. There's nothing in the Bible that says a preacher has to read the Bible, has to read the text 30, 30 times. I just kind of don't. Anyway, long story. I am not telling you I do it every time, but my desire, and Lord willing, a habit that is still getting close there, is every time before I read the text again, even if it's 20 seconds, I want to pause and just ask the Lord, Lord, give light on this. Help me to see the key things. Help make it accurate. Show me the part that is relevant. Show me the best things. That's one of mine I'll pray. Lord, like, show me the best of the best things in here. And I'll do that like over and over. That's an example of this going through life, living, talking to the Lord, daily fellowship, need your help here, thank you for that, acknowledging the Lord here. That's over and over just throughout the day. Is my life more important than yours? No. If you're thinking, well, that's good to know that our preacher does that every time before he reads the text. What I'm doing is not any more important than what you're doing. You ought to be going through your day and praying, God, help me in this. Help me in that. You're a housewife. God, help me in this. Help me in that. Just talking to him all day long. Now listen, daily fellowship is vital. But even it is no substitute for private closet prayer. Daily fellowship, walking with the Lord, communing with the Lord, it is vital. You need that. That's the one I need to be putting more and more into my life. As great as that is and as urgent as that is, that does not replace the Lord's call in your life. Jesus says when you pray, enter into your closet. And when you've shut your door, got rid of all the distractions, then you pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, will reward you openly. Pray in private. So I'm almost done with the prayer thing. Be honest with yourself. Do you currently have a private place free of distraction? Do you have a private time free of distraction? I know it'll get a good many here this morning. Don't. Find it. It's it's vital. It's crucial. Is private prayer such a part of your life that those who are nearest you 
Know that that is part of your daily schedule. So much so that, hey, what do you need? Yeah, we're so sorry. You know what, right now is uh, just not the best time. Is it an emergency? Not meaning it's not interruptible, but are you at a point where those around you kind of know, uh, yeah, right now she's, she's in a very important meeting. Oh, can I get back? Yeah, I'll have her get back with you in a moment. Is that your schedule? Do people close to you know, man, this is, that's where they pray, and that's when they pray. Don't disturb them. Strive for that. That's where the power's at. Secondly, would you notice verse 12 to 14? So he's in this, on the roof. He goes into a trance. He sees the heavens open. This great sheet has all kind of animals inside. And you're, I, I try to picture that. You're like, Jeff, what, what do you mean what, all kind of animals? All I could do, again, I don't know for sure, so I'm just going to throw it out. In your mind, go to the Columbia Zoo. Go to the Columbia Zoo. Over there, you got some farm animals. Over there, you got some from Africa. Over there, you got some swinging. Over there, you got some slithering. Over there, you got some in the water. You got some bears. You got some lions. You got some big cats. You got big tall giraffe. You got some zebras. You got, I mean, all kinds. Again, the farm, you got it, got it all. Different kind of birds, cre- creeping, crawly things. And Peter's told to rise, kill, and eat. But there's a problem. Would you write this down? I was going to read, go and read it, but it would take way too long because it's like 40-some verses long. And ultimately, I'm going to boil Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11 boils down what, is, what was clean and unclean animals for Jews. Do y'all remember to be a clean animal? Do you kind of remember in your mind what had to be true of an animal? Two things. Literally, an animal, two things. If these things are true, you can eat it. Had to have a cloven hoof. So number one, has to have a hoof. What about if it has a paw? Nope, can't eat it. Has to have a hoof. Oh, a hoof, like a horse. No, a horse doesn't have a split divided hoof. Has to have a split divided hoof. Second thing, it has to chew the cud. So now we know it has a divided hoof, a split hoof. We know it eats vegetation, but it doesn't just swallow it once. It swallows it, goes into one chamber of the stomach. They lay down, they chew it really good, goes into one chamber of the stomach. They regurgitate, vomit, throw up, whatever you want to call it. It comes back up, they chew it some more, it goes down into another chamber. They re-throw it up, vomit regurgitate it again, chew it some more, and however long that takes. And so any animals that fit in that category, clean animals, Jews can eat them. But anything outside of that, it's a no. Clean fish, two things, real simple, fins and scales, fins and scales. And you may be thinking, don't all fish have fins and scales? No, they don't. They have fins and scales. In fact, I even looked one up because I was like, do trout have scales? So I asked Google, and good old Google says, yes, trout have scales all over their body. So trout, clean animals. So here's the problem. There's all kind of unclean and some clean mixed in. Peter's told to rise, kill, and eat. And his answer is, I'm not going to do that. But the whole authority of this voice is like this. I'm putting this in. It's as though the authority of the voice is like, hey, Peter, listen. I'm the one who told you what clean and unclean is in the first place. And now I'm giving you a new revelation that affects your moving forward. I'm giving you a new revelation that is important. Rice, kill and eat. What God has made clean, don't call common. Would you look at verse 14? But Peter said, by no means, Lord. By no means, Lord. Stuart Custer asked a great question. So I'm going to propose it to you. And you'll see the ridiculousness of this, right? Custer asked, quote, you ready? If the Lord... Of the universe 
commands something, how can Peter say he will by no means do it? That's silly, isn't it? Like, and he knows it's the Lord. If the Lord of the whole he didn't have a clue how big the universe is, neither do you. You're like, I do have a No, you don't. You have no clue. You know more than he did. If the Lord of the whole universe gives a command, commands something, Custer asks, how can Peter say he will by no means do it? Write this down. The words no and Lord do not go together. No, Lord, those don't go together. They never go together. Wait, is he Lord? Yes, he's the Lord. I know he's the Lord. Then how dare you say no to the Lord? You can't say no to the Lord. If you're saying no, then you're not treating him as if he's the Lord. If you acknowledge he's the Lord, then the only answer is yes, Lord. But here's what's strange. Did y'all catch this? The Lord does not just hammer him. He doesn't just like drive him down and rebuke him, put him in his place. He just gives the instruction again and again, three times. He's very patient. Someone asked y'all something. Don't answer out loud. Why is God being so patient with Peter in this situation when he's directly saying, by no means, Lord? I think two reasons. Number one. God is being patient with him because Peter has a passage of Scripture, a specific passage of Scripture that tells him, those, that one, that one, then that one, those are not clean animals. I'm not allowed to eat. He has a passage of Scripture, so the Lord's being patient. And the second thing I would offer is, no doubt, Peter is being inspired by Daniel's memory. I mean, Daniel was carried off in exile. The Babylonian king says, you guys are going to eat this. And Daniel says, no, I am not eating that. That is unclean, and I'm not... And he took a stand, and God blessed it. And now here Peter's on a rooftop, and all these unclean animals are there. He's told to rise, kill, and eat. And his attitude is like, no, I'm going to be like Daniel. I'm not doing it. Never have, and I'm not starting now. And God is patient. Very patient. Unfortunately, this is Peter's habit. Do y'all remember I alluded last week to Matthew 16? Peter, who, uh, fellas, who, did, who does... Who do the people say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not shown, shown you that, but my father who is above. Right after that, Jesus tells the disciples very clear. For the first time, they're as far north as they will ever go in Jesus' ministry. They're way up here, and they're getting ready to head down to Jerusalem. And the Lord tells the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. And when we get there, the chief priests are going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to suffer many things, and I will be killed, and I will rise again the third day. And Peter says, quote, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Translation, God will never let that happen. We'll never let that happen. I ain't going to let that happen. That's not going to happen. Do you remember what Jesus told him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Not that Peter was Satan, but like that attitude of me not going to the cross is not from God. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. That's of the devil. I will be doing this, and you're not going to stop it. But Peter, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. No. John 13, second time. Jesus goes around washing all the disciples' feet. Jesus, washing the disciples' feet. Peter's watching this. You can feel the indignation and the pride just rising and rising. Here comes Jesus to him. And what's his answer? You, you will never wash my feet. No, no, no. Implication. I'll wash your feet. You will never wash my feet. What did Jesus say to him? If I don't wash your feet, then you are not one of mine. Oh, well, then wash me all over. No, no, Peter, there you go again, buddy. You don't, you don't understand. 
You have a lot of limited information. And that's the problem here. In all of these, he's filled with ignorance. He doesn't know what God is doing. No, you'll never die. No, he has to die. You'll never wash my... He's not understanding that God is trying to illustrate that we all serve each other. That we all forgive each other. And that we who live this life, we go through, yeah, our feet get dirty. And we have to get daily forgiveness from God for our daily sins. We don't have to get a brand new relationship. Now I'm catching myself preaching John 13. Don't have time to do that. Peter, over and over, resisting God. Here he goes again. But he means well. Do you remember his excuse? For I've never done this. And Leviticus tells us not to. Just before we hit the second point this morning. Sometimes God tells us as believers to do things very clear in the Bible. We read them. We hear them. And you know what we do? We wouldn't form the words, but by our actions, here's what we're doing. By no means, Lord. Not doing it. In this room right now, people worse than Peter, no. It may be as simple as baptism. You heard about baptism. You heard it many, many times. You know you're a Christian. You know you've never gone forward and got baptized. And you sit there right now again, and you haven't filled out the form. Why are you telling God no? Not to re-preach earlier on in this point. Jesus says, when you pray, enter in your closet. Close the door. Pray to your Father who's in secret. Have a time of private prayer. You heard me give you a challenge. I've done this many times. And you may be sitting there again. And one more time. Nope. Not going to do it, Lord. Not going to do it. What is your reason? Peter had a Bible reason. Leviticus says it. What is your reason to say, nope, not going to do it, Lord. Not getting baptized. I'm not going to pray. By the way, many of you watching right now, you have a great reason. But there are some people watching online. And the Bible says very clearly, you are not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. What is your Bible reason? So somebody may be sitting here this morning. You haven't been in church in a long, long time. Why? You're a believer. Why not? What's your, what are you going to tell? By no means, God, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have to do that. If you're a Christian, man, I know I'm coming across real mean. God has given all believers a spiritual gift or gifts to use to serve the body. And I believe there are some people like, no, not doing it. Not going to do it. On what grounds? That is ridiculous. That's absurd. We're all told to make disciples. Not just become disciples. Once you've gotten saved and become a disciple, how are you making disciples? Not going to do it. It's not my personality. That's good for them. That's for those that they're called. If they get a salary, they need to make disciples. I got a different job. No, you're living in rebellion. You're telling the Lord of the universe, no. What grounds do you have? It may be this. Hey, forgive them. Forgive. We forgive each other. No, Lord, I don't want to forgive. I like, I like bitterness. You have no right. Let's move on to more favorable things. Number two. This is kind of the passage there. So we just looked at this vision. What does it mean? So let's note the dual meaning of Peter's vision. I'm going to offer there's a dual meaning. In fact, this vision is so important. Did you catch it? It, it was given three times. Hey. Hey. 
What's so important that God has reminded you of it again? It may be like, like literally, are you asking that right now, Jeff? Because something you just said, the Lord has been hammering me on it. How many times is it going to have to repeat it before you get it? Like, I mean business. This is important. Three times. But there's a dual purpose and dual meaning in Peter's vision. Let's hit them both. I'm going to offer number one. And I'm going to use the word secondary. What is this? All these animals. What does this even mean? Number one, its secondary meaning is that God has abolished the Old Testament dietary laws that once divided Jews and Gentiles. And to that I say, thank you, Lord. The secondary meaning is that God has abolished the Old Testament dietary laws that once divided and separated Jews and Gentiles. Don't need it anymore. There was a day that it separated Jews and Gentiles. But now God is not wanting Jews and Gentiles to be separated by this. And so God is amending this. Did you catch verse 15? Let me translate it. Hey, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. Never eaten anything common or unclean. Hey, 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 Peter. Peter, buddy. buddy. Peter, do you think I would ask you to sin? I'm never going to ask you to sin. I'm not asking you to eat what's unclean. I'm telling you to eat what has now been cleansed. What? Peter, this ain't the first time you weren't paying attention the first time. This is the second time. You should have gotten it before, but I'm still being patient. I know you got Leviticus. Because you got Leviticus, I'm going to be patient with you. It's the second time. You say, second time? Flip back, if you would, Matthew chapter number 7. No, Mark chapter 7, not Matthew. Mark 7. Go over there kind of quickly. Mark 7. Actually, we should be hearing some pages turn, and we should be seeing some that happening, right? Or tap, 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 however you guys do. Mark chapter 7. Here's the scene. Here's the scene. Some Pharisees have noted that some of Jesus' disciples are eating and they haven't washed their hands the right way. We say, what's the right way? The way that the Jews had come up with traditional ways that you're supposed to wash your hands with a fist. And they didn't do it exactly right. And they're daring to eat. So here they come. Hey, 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 hey. How come your disciples are eating with unwashed hands? I'm, I'm, I'm setting the context. Jesus says, you know what? You guys have three problems. Number one, you talk like you really love God, but your heart is nowhere near God. Number two, you make up your own little man-made rules and preach them as if they're God's laws, and they're not. They're your man-made rules. Number three, here's the other problem. When God actually has said something, if one of your commands conflicts with that, you choose your commands over God's. And so having had enough of their nonsense, watch what Jesus does in verse number 14. Mark chapter 7, verse 14, watch what he does. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Like, Wow. Hey, 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 you guys have three problems. Bang, bang, bang. You know what? Hey, everybody get over here. Come here. Gather around. What's he getting ready to do? Everybody here? I want you to listen to me, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. These guys are ticked off that my, my followers are eating without having washed their hands just the right way. So when everybody listen, I want you to understand. I, I sense he's... Maybe not as much as I just did, but I think he's kind of like, verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Read that again. Everybody needs to hear what Jesus said. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Like spiritually, make you spiritually unclean. 
But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Lord, what was that? And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, physical stomach, and is expelled. And then we have this parenthetical statement that Mark, heavily influenced by Peter, puts in there to summarize what in the world Jesus was doing. Thus he declared all foods clean. Everybody gather around. Nothing outside, implication, nothing external, nothing physical that goes into you. Nothing is going to make you, oh no, you're defiled in and of itself. Hang with me. It's about our heart. It's about your heart, your core. That's what it's about. Now, I don't want to break what I'm about to read, but I am going to say it. Nothing, nothing. Now, there are some things you can put in your body that are poisonous. It might kill you. But it's not going to religiously make you defiled. If there is something you are putting in your body from outside and it's against the law of the land, then you're breaking the, 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 the commandment to obey the government's laws. And that would make that unclean. But of itself, that thing is not defiling. But if it's been made a law, then it is defiling. Are you, are you tracking? It's about the heart. But now, not to break what I'm going to read in a moment in Colossians. But let me be clear, and I'll just let you, I'm not going to spell it out for you. Y'all are big boys. If you put something... Outside of your body, into your body, a drop of it, a morsel of it, it is not defiling. But you need to know that because it's the heart that matters, if you put enough of something into your body and it makes what's going on in your heart corrupt and sinful, then that becomes sin. If it makes what comes out of you because you put so much of something in your body, if it makes it corrupt and sinful, then you have sin. Ephesians 5.18. Flip over if you would. Romans 14. Romans 14. Oh, I've got to hurry. This is a long chapter. And boy, I remember when years ago we preached through Romans. We spent weeks on this, right? What has this been? About four years ago? Four and a half? Look at verse 20. I'm mainly hitting the middle. I'm mainly hitting the middle. Because what Jesus started is repeated in Acts chapter 10. And it's just taught authoritatively and very strongly by Paul in the epistles. Look at Romans 14 verse 20. Remember the, the discussion? Oh, here's some meat. And this meat's been offered to idols. And those pagan people offered this as a sacrifice to idols. And now here's a Christian. There's some leftover meat. Should this Christian eat that? Well, they're not eating it as if offered to idols. That, that looks like good. Is that ribeye? Like, man, I'm going to take that. That's going to be awesome. You can't eat that. That's been offered to idols. It's not sinful. It isn't sinful. Read Romans 14. But now watch what he says. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It's oh, uh, way too much. Don't you get so in love with your food that if another Christian thinks it is sinful that your attitude is like, I don't care what you think. I know there's nothing wrong with it. I'm going to eat it. And they think you've sinned. Or 
if someone thinks it is sinful and you talk to them, no, no, listen, don't worry about it. Eat it anyway. And they think it is sinful, then you're leading them into sin. So watch verse 20. I'm really heading to the next line. Do not for the sake of food. Is it really worth it? Destroy the work of God. The work of God is people. Watch the next line. Everything is indeed clean. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Colossians chapter 2, quickly. Flip Colossians 2. Lest you think, oh, you don't have any Bible. All you got is Mark and Acts and Romans. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, verse number 16. Let's just read it and move on. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Hey, that's wrong. You can't eat that. You can't drink that. Then maybe don't eat it and drink them around them. But there's no judgment in and of itself. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You didn't observe that festival. It's in the Old Testament. That special week, that Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And if that wasn't clear, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse number 1. Paul tells Timothy, pastor to pastor, Hey, Timothy, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. So the, the faith, watch, the faith, the revealed Word of God. The Spirit has expressly said that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. How are they doing this? Verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Second, back to Acts. We should not be moving anywhere else. Back to Acts. Secondary meaning, yeah, God's abolished all the dietary laws. Don't have to worry about So, have you, did you have some shrimp this week? Maybe some catfish? Maybe some game that has a paw? You had that recently? You had any pork? Did you have any sausage or bacon? Or like me, I've had multiple ham sandwiches this week. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad this is no longer part of my conscience because it's good maybe not be the best for us but it tastes good toasted bread mayonnaise dupes ham sandwiches good stuff that's good lunch hard to beat secondary no primary write it down the primary meaning of Peter's vision this is really it God makes believing Gentiles clean and includes us in the church God makes believing Gentiles clean. It's not just God makes all Gentiles clean. And so Peter's learning a lesson up on the rooftop, if you'll pay attention. It's not just about food. And by the way, I'm going to offer my opinion here. I believe that between Peter's attitude toward Gentiles and Peter's attitude toward unclean foods, I believe he has the strongest conviction about the foods. And so I believe the Lord's like, I'm going to show you a vision that has to do with unclean being made clean foods but the real implication is over here so having showed him that even this has been torn down and abolished so now your thoughts that you've been trained about Gentiles 
has been. And it's not this. It's not that used to be that Jews were clean and Gentiles were unclean and now Gentiles are all clean. That's not the point. No. Jews are all clean, unclean. Jews are all unclean by themselves apart from God. All Gentiles are unclean apart from God. But both are alike in two things. In their condemnation and in their salvation. It's not that the Jews are clean and Gentiles are unclean. No, both are unclean. Both of us have the same condemnation. But both can be saved the exact same way by putting their faith and trust in Christ. On level ground. Can make them clean. Wearsby words, and again, you see a reference there. I think I put that in, hopefully, in your notes. Romans 3, verses 9 and 10. As it's written, there's none righteous. No, not one. It precedes that by talking about literally the Jews are not righteous. Chapter, verses, uh, Romans 3, verse 22 and 23. Again, same idea. There is no distinction, no difference between the Jews, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Wearsby words it this way, and this is kind of tying back to last week. Quote, Wearsby writes, This vision meant that a Gentile did not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. God makes believing Gentiles clean. And then third this morning. Would you notice God's clear command to Peter? God's clear command to Peter. Verse 17. Would you look at verse 17? Got your eyes on it? Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed. Verse number 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision. Y'all feel that? What are these all doing here? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Kill and eat? No, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm not starting now. No. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. No. Peter, what's been made clean? Don't you call it common. Rise, kill and eat. No. He's, he's perplexed. Like literally, I don't know. What does this mean? Why would God tell me to eat unclean animals? Why would God ask me to sin? But right on the heels of that. Here's, again, I'm, I'm reading between the lines. He's, he's no doubt thinking. Did you just tell God no? You just told God no. Where do you get off telling God no? Was it, why would he say that? Was this important? Was this important? Three times, dummy. Three times. It's important. Like, Powell writes the following. Sometimes a divine revelation is not understood instantly. He continues, when the ways of God appear to be disconcerting, we should tarry in his presence. It's perplexing. What does this mean? What does this even mean? Tarry before the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to offer you guys, listen, Peter is in a legitimate dilemma. I believe this is a very strong dilemma. Didicus clearly says, and now I know that voice. I know that that's the Lord. That's the Lord talking to me. Why would he? Lord, what about? Peter, you missed it in Mark 7. We're not missing it this time. He's struggling. I propose to you that Peter was in a dilemma that was unique to the writers of the New Testament because they're receiving new revelation that actually amends Old Testament law. And this is a struggle. He's in the struggle. And so in that setting, here comes the Holy Spirit. Man, the, the, the vision is already 
got him perplexed. And man, he's pondering on it. And then comes the Holy Spirit. I find this a little bit amusing. And I may be, again, I read between the lines a lot. Y'all have to forgive me. And I always ask God for wisdom for like, that's Jeff's nonsense and that's actual Bible. You really need, do need to pray for wisdom on that. Because I don't always make it real clear. But if you'll watch the text, you'll know. Verse 19. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I sent them. Think about that. I want you all to feel that. Hey, 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 Peter. What, Lord? There's three men. I sent them. Okay. Go down. Don't have any hesitation. Right about then, I think I'd be wondering, like, what are these three? Why are you telling, what are you setting me up? What do they got, like three heads or something? What are they, like, from outer space? Like, what? No, when, when you realize what these three men are, I don't want you to feel guilty. Everybody follow. I want you to go with them and accompany them, and I don't want you to feel dirty. I want you to know that I'm behind this. You see that word hesitation? I'm going to give you my opinion. This is my opinion. Then you want to write there, Jeff's opinion. I believe the word hesitation there has less to do with time. Hey, Peter, you go down and y'all immediately head out. I don't think it's a, as much about time. I think it's a hesitation that's less about time, and I think it's, the hesitation here is more about a check in his spirit. Peter, I want you to do this. I want you to accompany them. You get up, go down, and I want you to accompany them, and don't let any check in your spirit. Hey, help me out. What word am I thinking of? That check in our spirit is a check in our what? Conscience. So what's this about? It's about conscience. Peter, I don't, I don't want you to have a bruised conscience. I don't want you to feel, I want you to do this knowing full well it is the right thing. I know what you've been taught your whole life. You've been taught you don't go under a Gentile roof. The chief priests on the day that Jesus tried before Pilate would not go under Pilate's roof. They stayed outside so they wouldn't be defiled. A Jew would never have a Gentile in his house and a Jew would never go into a Gentile. I know what you've been taught. I want you to accompany these men and it's from me. No hesitation. So what does this check in the spirit and this idea of the conscience mean? It illustrates, this is important. The, everybody get this. The only thing that can amend... The clear word of God in the heart of a Christian. The clear word of God in the heart of a Christian. Can anything amend that? God's word says that. I'm looking like there, right here. The only thing that can amend the clear word of God in the heart of a Christian in his conscience is a clear, later word of God. Would you write that down? The only thing, in other words... Everybody has a conscience. Unsaved people have a conscience. Christians have a conscience. Christians, you need to be reading the Bible and let the Bible educate your conscience. And when you find the Bible is clear about something, man, you put that into your conscience and you live with a clean conscience. You live with that. Abide by that. And you don't change that unless it becomes super clear that something that was written after that actually affects that, expands on it or limits it, or even, in this case, what we're talking about, abolishes parts of the Old Testament law. You hang on to that. 
Only a later word of God can amend the clear word of God. So, I'm going to give you, watch. Here's the implication. Three things are converging. Everybody with me? I know you're writing lots of notes. Three things have come together. There's a vision. They're distinct. I'm going to offer you all three are important. They're all coming together to work out God's plan. Number one, there's a vision. What? Number two, clear word of God, the Holy Spirit. I've sent three men. You go with them, have no hesitation. No check in the Spirit. And then there's this perfect timing of these guys that arrive. I mean, that just what I'm trying to say, my belief here is if there's no vision, if the vision doesn't happen and it's just this word of God, I believe he probably struggles to do what he needs to do. If there's no command from the Holy Spirit and just the vision, then he's up there and he's just confused and all of a sudden, hey, Peter, yeah, yeah, there's three guys down here. Yeah, what, what do you guys want? Yeah, listen, our boss, he's a Gentile, he's a military man, and like, eh. Had the three men arrived 30 minutes earlier, go back. They arrive at 11.30 instead of 12-something. And here they come. Hey, we need you. You're supposed to come with us? Like, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. And it's not so much that Peter feels better than them, and Peter's too proud to say anything to a Gentile. Honestly, what I'm talking about is, if these things didn't all hit at the same time, could Peter go to Cornelius and in a good conscience share the gospel? Or would he be like, why haven't you become Jewish? No, no, I just had that. No, you need to become Jewish, man. And then I'll tell you about Jesus. Let's get you Jewish. It all has to happen just the right way. And it did happen just the right way. Peter, I've got three men. I want you to go downstairs. You're going to accompany them. Hey, we're looking for a guy named Simon Peter. He really is supposed to be. Yeah, he's. I'm one you're looking for. Can I ask why you guys are here? Now watch. I did it while I'm in the reading, right? Can I ask why you're here? Yeah. You want to? No. This is going to sound crazy. Let me hear it. Our boss, he's a good man. Gosh dang, he's a good man. His name's Cornelius. He's about 30-some miles away. He's a Gentile. He's, he's Roman. You can see he's a soldier. We're his household servants. Did I tell you he's a good man? He's a good man. Um, your people love him. The Jews around him, he's good to him. Anyway, yesterday, about 22 hours ago, he's praying to your God. And this angel, <laughs> this angel shows up in his house and tells him he's supposed to send us. I'm just going to say he sent us down here. We're supposed to find you. And you're going to come with us. Because you're supposed to tell him something. Whatever you're going to tell him is an answer to his prayer. To your God. And I know that's, a, that's all I needed to hear. I'm just making sure. You fellas, come on in. Wait, what? What would you say? You fellas, come on in. With ins- Yep, come. He said, come here. Y'all don't. Come on in, guys. Would you write this down? For Peter to invite three Gentiles into, into his house shows that he's beginning to understand the vision. He's getting it. It took a word from the Holy Spirit, it took a vision, and it took perfect timing. But it all happened just right. 
And officially, guys, this morning, that's the end of the message, but I'm going to tag one, one thing that I couldn't get away from, and I may not be able to share it the way it needs to be shared. I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to throw it out to you. Is everybody with me? This may be there all the time, but this week it was like it, it seems more than normal. Would you look at verse 9? This is where we're going to finish this morning. Would you look at verse 9? So Cornelius has a vision on day one, whatever day that we could call that Monday. Who knows? So the next day, it's Tuesday. As, look at verse 9. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, this and this and this. I read that over and over, and I thought, like, wait a minute. Why is verse 9a in the Bible? All God had to do, you with me? Cornelius had a vision. Angel shows up, says this. He sends his men. Off they go. Meanwhile, the next day, Peter's on a rooftop, and Peter sees it. Why verse 9a? As they were on their journey and approaching the city, God wants us to see them. Skip down, if you would, verse number 17, because again, if you're just wanting to get the story across of Peter, we don't need verse 17 and 18. We need 17a. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, skip to verse 19, the Spirit said to him, there's three men. That's really all we need. So I'm wondering this as I'm reading this this week. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry. Why we got to start thinking about the various things, that the practical things that took for them? And now they're standing at the gate. They know not to go inside the gate. They stop at the gate. And calling out. And all this is taking time. And people are inside cooking food. And maybe it's taking a little longer than normal. Like why are we needing all the backstory? All we need to know is Peter had a vision. He says no. The Holy Spirit says oh yes you will. And here's some stuff. That's all we really need. Why are we giving verses 9 and verse 17 and 18? I'm going to throw it out to you. Clearly to me God wants us to know that neither one of these groups, these three men, or Peter, they have no clue what's going on with the other person. No idea. They don't know. Send three men. What are we supposed to do? Jaffa, Seaside, Simon Tanner, Simon Peter. Come. Okay. What if he says, just go. He's probably going to say, just go. They have no clue what's happening with Peter. Peter has no clue that they're on their way. He has no idea there's three men heading. They've been left the day before. He has no idea. And yet, are y'all like me? Yes, you are like me. We go through life. I know what I do. I think about what I'm doing. I rarely think about what other people are doing. And every now and when, when I do, I'm thinking about those that are nearest to me. I think every now and then I'll think, what is Jonathan doing right now? It was 13 hours ahead. And you'll do that with people that you love. But we don't really pay a lot of attention to what others are doing. But the Lord is clearly wanting us to understand what is this whole, what's this word that's called where God is orchestrating all things? It's his sovereignty, absolutely. The providence of God. And listen to me. We love miracles. Man, we love visions and miracles. And it shows the power of God. I'm going to repeat what I've said multiple times in the last year. The providence of God is really showing the power of God all the time. 
He is controlling every little detail. And God wants us, I believe, to see this morning as we end, to really contemplate and acknowledge and think about the providence of God. Could we have that up? I think it's, that would be up. So God knows everything. We only know what's going on in our little world, and we don't know all the details. But God, like, do you understand? This week, God's been preparing me for this, but God's been preparing you for this. I'm banking on that. I'm banking that God's been preparing you for this. And you're banking, boy, I hope he's got something to say this week. Why do we need to contemplate the providence of God? Let's finish with three reasons. Number one, it does tie into the word that was said. It exalts these other characteristics of God. It exalts the sovereignty of God. It exalts the omniscience, omniscience, everything. He knows everything. It exalts the omnipotence of God. He has all power. He's literally controlling. There's no detail he doesn't know. There's no detail he's not in control of. In everyone's life. And it exalts the wisdom of God. Like, man, how could he possibly bring all of that just so? It's the providence of God. And we need to, to recognize, need to think about it, need to praise him for it. God is sovereign in all things. God is omniscient in all things. God is omnipotent in all things. God is wise in all things. All these are needed to bring about the providence of God. To bring about his plan, his ultimate plan. Secondly, I'm going to invite you to contemplate the providence of God in your life because here's what you'll find. It builds your faith. God is always working in all things, even the little things, even the little things. I'm going to say it again. Had these guys gotten there 30 minutes earlier, then Peter's not ready. They got there exactly at the moment that God wanted them to arrive. Number three. Contemplate the providence and the control of God and all the details of life. Because it helps us to be sure, this is important, while we are obeying the commands of God. We're just out there like, Jeff, I know I'm supposed to go make disciples. And I did the Bible study. And the guy had some wacko beliefs. And all of a sudden, he stopped doing the Bible study because he's been corrupted by somebody else down in Columbia, down south of Columbia. And like, okay, okay, that happens. Don't stop. We can be sure that while we obey God's commands, He has been preparing. He is working. He is preparing circumstances. He's preparing His people to respond. He's working literally on both ends. He's preparing Peter for what he has to do. And oh, he's preparing Cornelius for what's getting ready. Everything. God's controlling both sides of the equation. And everything's right on schedule. Everything's on schedule. I know that's an odd way to finish. If you got just like five, not now, you got five minutes in your week, you want a fun little exercise, go read 2 Corinthians 9. Can I finish here? I'm going to give you quick hitter illustrations of this. You ought to go read 2 Corinthians 9, and in it, here's what you'll find Paul is writing a letter, he's sending it to the Corinthians. It's going to take some time to get to them. And in chapter 9, he's telling them, hey, Corinthians, you're going to collect a, a love gift for the poor saints who are over in Jerusalem. 
Now listen, it's going to take some time for this letter to get to you, and it's going to take some time for you to collect your love offering, and then I'm going to actually come. Everybody with me? Listen, I'm going to come, and I'm going to spend some time with you. So some weeks are going to go by, but then me and some other men, we're going to take that love offering. It's going to take us weeks to actually get to Jerusalem. But when we get there, and your love offering, your individual money all collected, when it's actually delivered, you know what's going to happen? It's going to end up being an answer to prayer that somebody's been praying for. Somebody over there, you don't even know it, they haven't even prayed yet, but when the timing is right, they're going to pray, God, please, we need you to meet this need. And right about then, we're going to arrive with your love offering, and then their heart's going to be encouraged. They're going to start praising God and giving thanks to God, and their faith is being built, and they're going to start praying bigger prayers. Because you're going to give. You're going to give. Tuesday. Can't go into details. So I get Renee's report Monday. She tells us what's going on there. So that's all past. Tuesday, knowing what I know, um, probably 8.30 or so, again, not to make me look good, I'm praying about an aspect of our finances, church. And I just ask the Lord, Lord, would you do something unusual? Would you just like do something impactful and unusual? And about 1.30, Renee came in and said that something unusual and impactful had happened. Had never had this come from this particular source. She knows the details. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know the details. And it was substantial and it was impactful. And I was like, and I told her, I said, I prayed for that just a few hours ago. Five-digit impactful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. That was worked out days in advance because it came in the mail. But it arrived to answer my prayer. You're like, well, this is going to happen anyway. You got lucky that time. Okay. Be a little cynic. Live life your way. I like mine. I went to the Bible college I went to because my uncle said, that's where you're going to go to college. And he was my pastor. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't have any other plans. Deanna was supposed to go four years down in Florida because it was going to be really cheap because she was a pastor's daughter. The problem was it just she didn't like it there. And she ends up coming to, I mean, a tiny, tiny little school less than an hour from here. I wasn't thinking about her. She sure wasn't thinking about some kid from Weaverville, North Carolina. We would have never met, but I believe God wanted me to meet her. And for some reason, he wanted her to meet me, and he wanted us to be married. I'm convinced of it. 2015, October, I had submitted a resume to a church in Chattanooga, extremely intimidating, just threw it out, Robbie Garrett was in on it, my wife, like, hey, you need to put a resume in, be their senior pastor, I ain't telling you, nuts, nuts old things started happening, that's 40 some people, I'll never have to worry about that, and all of a sudden there's Fewer and fewer and fewer, and all of a sudden they're doing Zoom calls. I'm like, how do you do a Zoom call? And Robbie's like, you can use my office. So I'm in there, probably September or so. Deanna and I are in Tennessee in October. We drive over. Let's at least take a look at the property and all that. Way. Long story short, 40-some end up down to two. And they had 12 people on their council, their pastor search team. And it was a tie vote. And the tiebreaker went to the other fellow. 
And that was painful to Deanna, especially. It was painful. Can't go into all the reasons why. But if I'd have been in pastoring in Chattanooga, I would have never put a resume in here. And this is where I was supposed to be. I'm supposed to be standing right here wearing this this morning. God's the God of providence. Notice it in your life. Look for it. Think. And then rest in it. Rest in it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I confess that this one didn't do as much for me this week as the last two weeks. But you showed me that you're working in the little things. Knowing you, there's probably somebody here got something out of today's message that in their world, this one spoke to them more than the other two messages the previous week. And so we praise you for that. Your word is always good. Thank you for speaking to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we don't have a bruised conscience about what food we eat. I really like a lot of things that were forbidden in the Old Testament. I really do. And Lord, it's good. Thank you for that. Lord, most of all, I thank you for making believing Gentiles clean and for giving us the very faith that we have to have to be saved. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for doing all the work of salvation, leaving us just to do the believing and the receiving. Thank you, God, that you've not left the barrier up between you and your people. You've torn that down. We get to join believing Jews, literally right there with Abraham. We join those from the east and the west, and we're going to sit at the table with Abraham. And you're going to serve us? <laughs> oh, we want to say that will never happen, Lord, but we're not going to say that. We're going to say... So be it, but we get to serve you. So we're going to serve you. Let us serve you in this life. Lord, lastly, thank you for your providence. Give us eyes to see it. And if there's any area that we're saying, no, Lord, let us repent and obey. Let us repent and obey and do it quickly. <coughs> And with a right attitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.